This is a Federal News Network podcast. A last-minute modification to the request for proposals for a signature government-wide acquisition contract has left industry a little shell-shocked. We're talking about the long-awaited CIOSP4 program from the NIH Information Technology Acquisition and Assessment Center, NITAC. NITAC officials seem to have neutralized small business partnerships. Many would-be prime bidders had developed. Here with some reaction, the Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Castro. Stephanie, good to have you on. Thanks so much for asking me. All right, so what does it look like they have done here with CIOSP and Let's start with that, and then we'll see what industry thinks of all of this. Sure. So it's it's probably useful just to ground ourselves in, in sort of when the RFP came out and, and what it means for industry. And that is the, the final uh, request for proposals came out on May 25th with the deadline of June 28th. And that's what industry was planning all along to, to submit their offers for. That said, I mean, this has been a long drawn out process where there were draft RFPs and a lot of input from industry, lots of questions, and not as many answers as there were questions. And so NITAC felt it necessary to put out an amendment just last week on the 22nd. This was Amendment 3 to the RFP. And it seems that they they went in a different direction. The services community that would support this government-wide contract vehicle really was focused on not having any surprises in the final RFP. And the easiest way to introduce surprises is to introduce multiple amendments. And that's exactly what NITAC did. This is a $50 billion opportunity. So a whole range of companies were interested. And um, they felt a little bit, uh, not a little bit, quite a bit taken by surprise by these amendments. And happy to go into further detail. But I just wanted to, to provide a little bit of background for folks who aren't as familiar as those of us steeped in it. Sure. Well, what did the amendments do relative to what people might have been assuming they could safely or confidently bid in the first place? So all up until last week, um, there were uh, discussions about what would be uh, submissible for past performance. And it was all along only the the prime contractor or the offer trying to be the prime contractor could, could submit their past performance. And that really structured the way folks were approaching this opportunity. They weren't doing a lot of uh, joint ventures or, or teaming arrangements because, you know, a lot of times if you're a small business, how you get relevant past performance is to uh, team with, with folks who round out your offer. And that was not done until Amendment 3 came out. And then so folks started going, how, how are we going to be structuring this? And to be, to be honest, um, the NITAC did add 10 days uh, to the proposal due date. And that went from June 28th until July 8th. But to get those arrangements in place takes far longer than that. There are other changes in that they wanted people to do uh, uh, project descriptions. Now, if you fill out a past performance questionnaire, and this is really into the weeds, but sort of where those policy wonks among us live, you know, you're using past performance from government customers. If you change those past performance questionnaires or you answer the information or provide the information in a different way, you often have to go get your original government customer to sign off on it. You need approval from them. And that definitely does not take just 10 days. And in some cases, it can take up to a month. And so it was a truly inadequate amount of time provided for this uh, this extension. But getting to the main point, though, the removal of some of the supplier partner past performance could harm small business, in your opinion, as well as louse up what you had bid after all of this time had passed. You know, when you when you have an RFP that comes out as final on May 25th, and then on June 22nd, provide Amendment 3, and on June 24th, provide an Amendment 4, you know, you're changing the goal line for a lot of these companies and who have used the past interactions over the last year or so with NITAC 
in the draft RFP stage of the game to really structure their approach. And then basically a few days before the due date, you tell them that they no longer have to be you know, saddled with that approach. They could actually change it up a bit. That is not the consistency that contractors need and look for from a, from a government customer. We're speaking with Stephanie Castro. She's Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And it sounds like they either overlooked something and discovered it at the last minute or had some kind of external input they didn't expect because it's not as if CIOSP hasn't been expected for years now. CIOSP number three, the one that this will follow on, has been in effect for, what, a decade? And so that's why, you know, there was, there was so much industry chatter and interest in moving forward with CIOSP4. People were excited to have the final RFP come out, but it was really a surprise in many ways. One additional aspect that I think listeners might be interested in is that, you know, during a Q&A session, prospective vendors or prospective offerers submit questions to, to a government customer, and they hopefully will get a response. What NITAC did in, in submitting responses is they combined questions. So if you're a prospective offerer and you're looking for an answer to your question, um, it's combined with another company's question. It may not be answered fully. It may not be answered at all, but NITAC thinks it was. And so there was a lot of confusion. And the final point I would make is that the RFP itself, even with all of these amendments, remains internally inconsistent regarding requirements, what's allowable, what's not. You know, we at PSC take it very seriously, especially since it's a range of companies, small, medium, large, and $50 billion worth of business, which is huge. We are, we are going to be submitting a letter to NITAC requesting a further extension for at least until the end of July at, at the earliest so that folks can, can answer, you know, questions about the inconsistencies on the NITAC side or put together the proposal that will put contractors best foot forward. Sure. They do like lousing up long holiday weekends, don't they? Yeah, the 4th of July is coming up. You know, this was released right before the Memorial Day. Um, I'm sure, you know, at the end of the day, if, if it's a fair, competitive, open process, contractors will do whatever they need to do to win business for their employees and for their companies. But at some point, NITAC has to put their pencils down, uh, make sure that we all have and know and understand the final, final final requirements and what the instructions are, but it helps to be consistent. And right now, I, I, I have a lot of questions about what's going on in COSP4. Okay. And while we have you, I wanted to ask you about a couple of other topics. Now, there is an alleged infrastructure deal in the Senate, and it's sort of off again, on again. Well, I'm not going to sign that unless you do this. Well, no, I'll sign it anyway. You know, the president says, and these things change by the hour. But the scope of that deal as it stands is there anything in that for federal services contractors? There is something in there for federal services contractors. As listeners may remember, this is the um, infrastructure deal, part of the American Jobs Plan Act, and it will run just under $1 trillion. There's certainly services contract money in that. You know, it's not just bridges and roads. It's also IT infrastructure, broadband. So the definition of infrastructure historically has meant sort of things, physical things you can see and touch and, and ride on, so to speak. Um, but right now it, it's also encompassing IT pieces and broadband. And so services contractors care very deeply about what happens on the Hill the, this week. Yes, because even things as passive looking as a road or a bridge, they are increasingly smart and wired and sensing and Internet of Things and all of this jazz, which is software and services to develop that capability, pretty much. True? That's true, uh, although I, I might quibble over the, the word smart. I don't know how, how smart the road's going to be at some point, but at, at some level it is wired. And if you're looking at 
toll roads or things along those lines, it certainly is important for, for our IT providers to get out there and, and roll up their sleeves and, and get a piece of this infrastructure contracting money that will help uh, Americans countrywide. Sure. And even the smartest road can't do anything about the idiots driving on it. Comment on that. All right. Stephanie Castro is Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. As always, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom, for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is going to lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a little rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. 
And and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision, and overcoming barriers. And and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up Again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy, and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. It's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers, and that that attribute I think is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career. 
not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, Confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.